any minute now, we should be here. We should be live. Welcome, James Lindsay, to The Voice of Reason. Are we live? It's been a while. I feel, I feel has it? It's been a little while. Yeah, like six well, weeks. It would be more often if I was ever home. Well, you're a busy, busy boy. That's true. What What's the biggest battle of the past month you've been in, employing your troops? Battle? I don't know about battle. Um, front. I went to Utah. That was fun. Um, Utah was cool, but, you know, they've got kind of the biggest parents organizing thing happening of any anywhere I've seen so far. So Utah's going to probably show some leadership uh, in the fight, which is exciting. What's Utah like? What are the folk like there? Well, the folk are great, but I happened to fly apparently. So I went into the Salt Lake City area which is apparently in some kind of valley or something. There are mountains all around that you can see with your eyes. They're they're large. And so when there's a high-pressure system, apparently it holds down all the smog, and this is a Salt Lake City problem. And so my first experience, I, you know, I'm flying in. I'm like, wow, look at this kind of gorgeous semi-desert um, mountainous landscape, the snow on the mountaintops. It's like everything's – and then all of a sudden it's like, why is the air brown? <laughs> it's like I can't really see the mountains when we landed. And it's like, wow, the air smells like Beijing. What's going on here? Oh, and it wow. really was. It was as close to being in Beijing as I've been since the last time I was in China. This was very polluted. It's a very stinky place. Hmm. Boo on yeah, that. Like car emissions or do they have some sort of industry there? Like all the Mormon there were, underwear There's some industry going on there. Definitely some industry going on. And so, you know, that was – it was okay though. Utah is really great. I like the people. The food is good. You know, the vibe is awesome. I was really impressed. So it's like, as you might imagine being, you know, Mormon country, it is like the most family centric like place ever. So you have all this kind of cool, everything's decked out for Christmas. It's like all family centered, like every, every park has like Christmas crap and families running around already. And, you're walking down the street and everybody's like run, you know, walking past each other, randomly knows each other and they're, Hey, how are you doing? You know, that kind of a vibe. So it, that was really awesome. I'm really stoked up. It turns out I was in Ogden, which is just North of Salt Lake actually. And Ogden has all this cool history. So I had this whole like vision about like, we should really be getting people to like get out on the ground and like go places and fall in love with America again. Cause it was like, like I did a podcast that came out today with the state senator there, John Johnson, and um, we did that in the, the the Browning Company building, the Browning 50 caliber Browning. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Browning machine yeah. gun Browning. Yeah, so yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. where that was invented. Like so that's history. And then, you know, a couple miles out of town, you got the Golden Spike where the railroads joined. Like I didn't go up there. I didn't have time, but we would have. And, you know, that's cool. And then you've got like the whole – you know, LDS church. So you got the whole kind of pioneer LDS thing happening there. So there's a ton of cool history. There's this hotel. We like come out of the building where I did the podcast. There's this building off to my left and a train station off to my right, like two blocks in each direction. The building off to my left is this huge hotel. Not like huge. I mean, it's a small town, Utah. So not like huge, huge, but, um, you know, 10 stories, maybe nine stories. And, uh, apparently if you kept going up that road, which is kind of like the main drag, or one of the main drags down Ogden, uh, you go up into the canyon. Um, Al Capone had a place up there, and he stayed in that hotel, and no at the way. bottom of the hotel was a bank. And apparently he robbed that bank, and what he had was a tunnel 
underground that had been dug all these secret tunnels from the bank to four blocks down to the train station and so he robs the bank goes into the tunnel nobody knows about jumps onto the train and is part way to chicago before you know so he gets away with it and so it's like there's all this kind of like cool little history stuff going on there yeah and like these guys you know uh, that i was with are kind of into that stuff so they're telling me it's like all it's on i-15 all the way up and down the i-15 corridor there's all this cool like pioneer frontier history i'm just kind of like geeked up like holy crap america's cool it's like you don't it's like i'm not condoning al, al capone obviously but it's like that happened I mean, that's cool like cool stuff happened all over the place you know this was you know, how the west was wilder and you know how it, mm-hmm. it, it's just in and, and you know the browning machine gun they strapped those to british planes changes the course of world war ii thus the history of the world because, you know, they strapped them onto whatever it was that the British were flying on their P-52 Mustangs or whatever. They strapped the Browning machine gun on those things. They shoot down, you know, a gigantic chunk of the Luftwaffe. And all of a sudden, you know, the the, the war is going differently. Had Germany got that level of technology first, who knows what would have happened, you know. And it's, mm-hmm. that's Browning. And, you know, there's all these crazy stories about stuff that happened there. And this is just like some town in Utah. And then you start thinking, it's like, that stuff's probably everywhere. America's cool. Like, America's really cool. It is. We have a a mentality of being pioneers and and forgetting uh, our history at the same time. We're always going to want to be on the bleeding edge. Yeah, like Washington, Oregon, like, that's the the tail end of that pioneer, you know, adventure or whatever, too. And then you could go up and down California and all of the you know, the, the prospectors and the settlers, and it's just some cool stuff that went down. And it's like, I'm all geeked up about some serious Americana now, uh, mm. as a result of that trip. So that's not exactly a battle, but on the other hand, I talked to this wonderful woman there who's organizing parents. Her name's Lisa Logan. And she put together some organizations, got like 25,000 parents already ready to fight back against what's going on in the schools, whether that's the critical race theory or the kind of grooming level comprehensive sex ed. And so it's like, wow, you know, that level of energy, every, every state I go to, I see all this different stuff, you know, like Wisconsin has like this total, um, kind of grassroots, uh, movement being building up. And they've got this whole like kind of family spirit, like this is old Midwest feel. I love it. And Oklahoma's the most organized place. They're like creating networks of, of organizations that are going to, Oklahoma's going to, going to be a massive leader. And then Utah's got this massive base of family parental energy and they're doing Mm. stuff. And, you know, sooner or later, these people maybe partly because it's something I'm doing (laughs) are going to start linking up. You know, there's there's some good bases of, of really great. You're building stuff. the Capone tunnel of of concerned parenthood. Yeah, and that, I mean that whole tunnel thing is just like they were telling me that whole street we were on. It used to be called Little Chicago because it's right there off a of Union Station. And Little Chicago, you know, you're in Mormon country, right? It's all family values and nice magic underwear and the dresses and everybody's all conservative and pious and no brothels, speakeasies, the whole nine yards going on, you know, kind of underground crime dens coming out of that railroad that shot straight over to Chicago, um, which Mm -hmm. is where, of course, Chicago is still obviously a hot criminal mess. So a little bit from what I hear. Yeah. A little bit. So in your all of these tr- travels across the America and the world, do you have a knickknack that you look for, like a keychain or a thimble? Do you have like a little tiny P-51 
piece or a rock? You, you try to get one thing from all these different uh, places, a memento no. collection? No, I don't. I just draw the line on my map. Okay, where that's I, your... I flew there. Do you have a yeah. nice Nikon that you take a a picture? I have a cell phone. All your friends. Okay, yeah, okay. I mean, are you no. doing any documenting of this, like of a no. memorable? I really probably should. I I'm not. Um, yeah. It's one of those things that in like three years I'll wish I had it, but like I don't yeah. have time for this. Yeah, you don't. It's yeah. some serious energy. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, to go into that. Oh, here we have uh, it. James, thanks for coming to the Better Discourses event in Texas. That was a battle. That was the beginning of the month. See, this is the other thing. I'm doing so much stuff right now Yeah. that I was explaining this to my wife. It's like time dilates. Like stuff that happened like three weeks ago, I think happened like months ago. I barely remember going to Dallas at the beginning of the month. Last month. I think I remember I you saying that you were about ago. to do that. What was what was that about and how, how did that go? So I had two things there, both of which were actually really interesting. The first of which I was invited to speak at the University of Dallas, which is a small Catholic college there in Dallas. And it's really cool. Um, got to meet with some people, got to find out what's going on there, talk to the president of the university. You know, he's based. Super cool to do that. To, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to be a, a good place to look for, you know, a university small as it is, it's not going to compromise on its principles. And so then turns out I get, I had the second event, the better discourses event. That's the myths Milwaukee guys or myth informed Milwaukee guys, whatever they call themselves now, Sean and Brian and Fritz and all these dudes, uh, the, my, my Wisconsin posse. And so they have their better discourses kind of super YouTube drama debate program every year. And so, uh, you know, they've been trying to get me to come out to that since like 2017 and something comes up every year and I can't go. And so I finally sucked it up and went this year. I was happy to do it. And, you know, so it was me and the guy that goes by actual Justice Warrior, his name is Sean, um, on one side on the stage for my panel. And then this dude that calls himself Jangles and this other dude, very confused at first for me, was this guy named Mike Gonzalez, who's woke who's not the Mike Gonzalez that works at Heritage, who's definitely not woke. Uh, I was totally confused uh, when I saw the name on the thing at first, and then I figured out this is a different guy. And so, you know, they were going to be like pro-CRT and CRT in schools, and we were anti-CRT in schools. And that debate's online, and I got a cool little video out of it where I'm like, false, and uh, somebody, and I like put my hands up in the air. So Do you that think that there fun. was... A- Insofar as it was a debate, do you think that it was fruitful? Do you think that uh, either no. side got to be at all a little bit uh, expanded in their in what they're thinking no. about and no. any compromise? In fact, I articulate in the in the near the end of the debate why that's not possible. We have two fundamental between the critical perspective and the non-critical perspective. We have two fundamentally different perspectives on how the world works, whether or not uh, structural determinism is a organizing principle of society or not and across that bridge there is no discussion it's you either accept that or you don't accept that the whole debate between critical race theory and not critical race theory is do you accept structural determinism or not except ever and so all we all we do is argue the window dressing but that's the actual heart of the debate do you believe that societal structures like systemic racism actually condition people's views and perspectives to the point where they have political commitments that are are required of them uh, as a result 
do you believe that or not? And as an individualist and therefore not a collectivist, I certainly do not believe that. So there's no middle ground. That. There's no like society does inform me, but I, I'm also an individual that can inform society. There's no like, you know, some sort of like catalytic converter. There is, thing. which is actually probably largely accurate, except that structural determinism uh, doesn't really admit for its determinism. It doesn't really admit for a lot of middle ground, right? The, it's not structural influence. It's structural determinism. And so, uh, no, there's there's not actually middle ground between this is how the world works and then people who say, you know, that's overly reductionist. And the people that you were debating with in that debate specifically, were they self-aware of that? Did they admit to that? And then did they say why they reasoned that way? Were you able to like kind of You should just them... watch the debate. Oh, yeah. It was a circus. Right. It was oh, a so. effing circus. Okay. Uh, total clown show. Um, Better than the Dr. Phil thing that's still a myth? So far that is still know. a myth. That is a myth and a legend. It, that did happen. It is not released. Um, and they still haven't said a single word to us about why it hasn't been released. Uh, so I have no idea about the Dr. Phil story. Uh, but I left out a piece of the Dallas trip, which is this weird, fruitful thing that happened in between. So I'm down in the lobby of the hotel on my way to go to my talk, getting ready to go to my talk. And uh, this guy comes over to me. And he's like, he recognizes me and he wants to say hi. He's like a fan or a friend or whatever, you know, from the internet. Turns out he's a professor at Hillsdale and we get talking and he's like, oh, I'm here for a totally different event, blah, blah, blah. Well, because I had these two events, I had a couple of days in between them where I didn't have any commitments. And, uh, you know, I was kind of open for some, he's like, you should just come to, <laughs> to our conference, this other conference. And I was like, uh, okay. And so it's the, the society for Thomas More studies, which is like this super niche. Yeah. Who's Thomas More? Thomas More is a theologian, um, from okay. the if Catholic theologian from the late or sorry, early 16th century, late 15th century. He's most famous for having written utopia. And he coined the term, the, the, the term utopia, as far as I know. And so he wrote this satire about this kind of perfect collectivist world that is utopia and utopia famously from the Greek means nowhere, which mm -hmm. that's the satire, right? It doesn't actually exist anywhere. It doesn't work. Yeah. And so, um, they have this whole you know, society there that's in its 20th year of having a conference dedicated to studying the works of Thomas More, which is so niche. And so I end up getting invited. I end up going over to this thing. Um, totally don't know. It's like I didn't even realize who I knew who Thomas More was, but they had to tell me who he was before it clicked. Right. It was like, they're like, why, you know, what brings you to this? I'm like, I don't know who Thomas More is. And then they're like, what? And I'm like, what? And then they're like, Utopia. I'm like, uh huh. You know, first they tried to explain a bunch of other stuff and it was like nothing. And then they said utopia. And I'm like, oh, I know that. Okay. And so um, I get there and I go to their fancy dinner and I talk to all these people and it's kind of cool. And then I listen to a talk and I get this. Turns out this guy gives this talk about um, Thomas More's what they're called uh, is tower letters. So at the end, Thomas More was imprisoned by Henry VIII in the Tower of London. Then in the very end, they cut his head off. Or hanged him, one or the other. I think they cut his head off, but I didn't know they he killed was him at any English Catholic theologian. Yeah, that's, that's spicy. Correct. Very spicy. More is with one O M O R E, and so um, 
he wrote these letters when he was imprisoned and he's got this whole like one of the big themes of Thomas More is suffering well. Right. This is what I gained from listening to this talk. One of the things I gained. And so why? Because so he's talking about how you retain your like cheerfulness in the face of like total tyranny and imprisonment. Totally, you know, turns out, I guess he and Henry were actually friends on some level before he was imprisoned. And so he's trying to like reach out to his friend, like, you know, don't do this. And it doesn't matter because it's like, you know, the whole beginning of the Anglican church and that religious fight in the king kingly pride and in, in the character of Henry the eighth is kind of a famous tyrant. Um, so it didn't He's go the one well with all the wives just to, yeah, the wives. And so, yeah, the divorce and the wives and the killing and the, the heads. so anyways, yeah, the heads. And so as, as it turns out, um, you know, suffering well, I'm listening to these guys afterwards at the after party thing, if we call it, we were drinking at the bar at the hotel um, and we we're talking and like, these guys have this really interesting perspective, like that comes out of classics like Cicero and, uh, you, you know, Erasmus and all of this. And it's like, wow, this stuff needs to come to light. This stuff is really informative for the culture war, but these guys are just kind of off doing their little thing for each other. Like, the guy that gave the talk, the keynote, didn't mention anything relevant to the culture war. And he's sitting there talking about suffering well under tyranny. And it's like how valuable to the present moment could this stuff be? So I'm kind of mm. geeked up and kind of trying to like talk to these guys and, you know, hoping they're going to start speaking up more of these, these kind of classicists and Thomas More people. And um, but in the in the middle of this, though, and this is kind of interesting for my work, I'm listening to the guy talk yeah. and it's like, you know, it's all outside of my range. It's interesting, but I don't need to really know a lot about Thomas More's tower letters and you know he's going through them and then he's like blah 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 and to quote the great poet dante da 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 the great refusal da 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 i don't remember what all the da 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 is but great refusal stuck out because that was the name of herbert marcuse's big project that's what people are supposed to do and so i'm like whoa that links to a dante reference so now i've been down going on this herbert marcuse theology rabbit hole um hmm. what did herbert marcuse know and when did he know it did and, you just say you know, pervert Marcusa, or did I well, miss sure. It? Let's just say that, yeah. No, Herbert. Herbert the pervert. Um, you know, he's got a popsicle. Come on down. Um, We're going to get to grooming later on. I want to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so anyways, there's this – Marcusa knew his stuff, right? He's not an idiot. He's an extremely well-read leftist lunatic. Not an idiot, just a lunatic. And so it's like mm. I'm digging in and I'm reading, you know, Dante again and I'm looking at this and I'm like, holy shit, this is what Marcuso is actually – this is why he called it the Great Refusal. This is theological. This is okay. all theological. Okay. So that's Canto three of the of the Divine Comedy if anybody wants to look it up in Inferno where the Great Refusal is mentioned. And it's the people who aren't even allowed in hell because they refuse to commit to anything. Uh, heaven won't have them because they're not – Christian Apostates and hell won't have them because they weren't even committed enough. So they wander around getting stung in the face by bees and eaten by flies on this great plain on the, on the near side of the river sticks, not on the hell side. This is the Kanto, by the way, that starts with the famous, you know, abandon all hope. Those who enter in or whatever ye who enter in, uh, on the sign of, at the gate of hell. And these guys are cursed to wander around on the plain outside of hell carrying a blank banner a flag with nothing on it because they committed to nothing and it's like shit that's what marcusa wanted people to commit to nothing 
to just completely refuse morality and society altogether. Now, like this is theological. Really? This is deep. And so that was a really interesting stumble upon to have mm-hmm. there. And plus, then they mm-hmm. gave me these books by this other Catholic guy in the 1850s named John Henry Newman. And I got the idea of the university and uh, the grammar of ascent. And I've read uh, about half now of the idea of a university, which is like 500 something pages long of dense kind of theological education philosophy or whatever. But I found the the preface to that, at least so far, to have been extremely useful for understanding um, kind of what's gone wrong in Western civilization. So it's been it's been a very fortuitous November mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. getting into December uh, none of which I thought was going to be the case. Well, you never know what you're going to stumble into. I want you to help me square this uh, circle, though. If Marcusa wants these dedicated to nothing people, he wants an army dedicated to nothing. Why is it the case that the so-called woke and his acolytes, uh, a few generations removed, are always putting people into the bind of you're with us or you're against us? You're either anti-racist or you're racist. Why are they forcing everybody to commit Okay, it that's seems actually like a good question. And it, it's because it is a great and total refusal. So if you're not refusing, then you're supporting, right? So the, there's the existing society, and if you don't refuse it, then you're supporting. And then somebody in the comments has mentioned it's in One Dimensional Man, uh, Marcus's 1964 kind of magnum opus or whatever. And at the very end, by the way, this is one of the pieces where I was like, okay, this is undeniable. The very, very end of... Um, one-dimensional man, and I don't have it right here in front of me. I could open it up, actually, and should just open it and read it. But he actually says that critical theory is the thing that's on the banner of the people who take the great refusal. And then the last words of one-dimensional man are a quote from another critical theorist, Walter Benjamin, and he says it's something like, it's for those who lack all hope that hope is given us, or something like that. And it's like obviously obviously an allusion back to abandon all hope ye who enter in. Uh, which means you go into hell and you have no hope. But if you stay out of hell, then you still have hope that you can achieve the perfectly antinomian society that Marcuse is writing about. So uh, he's, he still wants to deny heaven. He doesn't want to participate in a heavenly correct. world. But he wants to deny hell also and that's somehow correct. create this, this, this man zone, this purgatory that, that's completely controlled no, not by some sort of— either. Purgatory is, is still in the system. So it is a complete rejection of the whole system. So it's it's I don't know if it's the same thing as when I was growing up when I was a Catholic. They said the limbo. I don't I don't know if it, the plane is called limbo, but it, it is this plane outside of hell where it's it's outside the system, but it's still it's it's ruled by man or it's ruled by refusal. Like like so, there's a constant, and that's why we have the purity spirals. That's why chaos is the result of the people who take this up and actually ingrain it into an institution is because they can't actually stand for anything. They can only right. ever. Be against. Negate. Be against. Negate. That's right. Negative thinking. Everything is negative thinking in the critical Marxism tradition. And you see that happen again and again. Horkheimer says it. Marcuse says it. Adorno says it. Then you get into like I'm reading this book right now about education called The Critical Turn in Education by Isaac Gotsman. And he and Michael Apple, who wrote the foreword to it, say it. Those are both Marxist education theorists. And it's like this is where Marx had this whole idea of kind of inverting everything and have man in himself kind of taking the place. I don't know if you know this about Marx. Marx believed that to be fully independent, man had to be truly fully independent. He had to become man, capital M, man in himself. 
And so he couldn't be, you know, made in the image of God or the image bearer of God, because then he's not man in himself. He's a child of God. So he's dependent upon God. So you have to reject God. So you have this whole theology of rejection there. But he also can't even be a child of nature. And that's why you have the idea that socialist man is going to remake nature. And, you know, then Lenin turns it into Soviet man, um, which is, the you know, the new mm-hmm. Soviet man project to create mm-hmm. a new kind of man. And, of course, Marcuse in, in Essay on Liberation talks about this. The, the first section is called, Is There a Biological Foundation for Socialism? And he's talking about needing to change man at the biological level, by which he yeah. says not really biology, but like really psychology and to make him completely dependent upon um this new way of thinking about the world but his new way of thinking is the great refusal and the great refusal means we're not going to sign up for anything so what it is is it's, it is if you read further for example in essay on liberation or in one dimensional man you see where he talks about aesthetics all the time but the aesthetic of the critical marxist movement is the anti-aesthetic I think we've talked about this in the past. What is the Well, I mean, if you look at uh, Naima Lowe, who's a feature in my Evergreen documentary, like her entire aesthetic is the anti-aesthetic. She's purposefully ugly. Make it, in in fact, it's it's, it's not even just purposely ugly. It's like perverted. And I mean that not in the uh, sexual sense. I mean that in Mm -hmm. the literal sense. It's how do you take the thing and make it a mockery of itself, right? And that is... The heart of the critical Marxism, and that critical Marxism is what's informed everything that's been happening since the 60s. This sounds like a, a, a steroided up version of enlightenment, a hyper monadical, a man removed, the mind removed, a very Western ideal of, you know, just kind of thoughts in a computer. It seems profoundly unsexy. It, it seems not only are they forsaking God, but they're also forsaking uh, love creativity, joy, and, you know, the relationship between the man and the woman that actually gives rise to human beings. It seems like a hyper-masculinist, almost monastical tradition and just in its refusal of the body and, and life, it seems like. That's what I'm hearing. Sure. Yeah. And so it's really interesting then because our, our favorite Iron Law of Woke Projection comes into the picture because if you read Marcusa, it's, he's, he's claiming it's literally exactly the opposite. Right. He's like, this is going to free the libido from the constraints of having to be uh, sublimated into productive work. Um, This is going to to free creativity, to be genuinely creative rather than to be creative within the confines of the existing system, which conditions, you know, the heteronomous interests of the of the different consumer and propaganda and media entities conditioning people so that they're not truly creative and all they can do is regurgitate. Uh, copies of copies of copies of copies, as Budriard had it later. So and, it's and like Walter Benjamin. Uh, I think he started building those ideas in the age of mechanical reproduction. Not to get yeah, you yeah, exactly, exactly. And so it's like you can kind of tell. It's like it, there's the whole thing is built built on this giant bait and switch, right? It's like they're promising you like yeah. the best version of this possible, but saying you can only get it by completely rejecting what's really here. Yeah. Like you have to completely reject all of the real good and then the the extra good good is is available. And that's what he even complains about. You know, he's like capitalism. He even says this in Essay and Liberation. Capitalism is delivering the goods. I remember reading that and laughing. You know, it delivers the goods. It's giving people a better life. It's stabilizing society and, and it's stabilizing the working class. It's giving people the opportunity to have a good life. And he says, and to be sure it is a good life. Right. He even says that. 
And he's like, but there's a better life. It's called communism, you know. He doesn't say it's called communism. He doesn't ever yeah. really use that phrase. What um, does he use instead? Uh, well, it depends on which different book. Uh, verbiage in, in, then. He doesn't have, in, does he have like one word, like uh, the great refusal, or is he always constantly having to change his language? He rarely actually, he mentions the great refusal, but mar far more rarely than you would suspect. It only appears, I think, eight or nine times in, in One Dimensional Man. It only appears two or three times in Essay on Liberation. Uh, no, he but talks does, about... Does, is he always like uh, constantly uh, pointing out his one idea or his one ideal? Liberated or is he society. Always, okay, so liberated, liberated society. society. Okay, so, so yeah. liberation and the process of liberation is the theme. Or a truly democratic society is another way that he okay. phrases it. Okay, uh, okay. He, he goes into a lot about democracy in that regard and how we have a false democracy, but a true democracy lies on the other side of all of this. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it, he sees it as a completely liberated state as as a uh, compared against what he says now is an, an administered state, which I see yet again as a gigantic iron law of woke projection, right? Because they've created the most administered state you can possibly imagine out of his ideas. And so, you know, like I said, this has been a very kind of philosophically fruitful, weird month that I had mm -hmm. since you brought that stuff up. Um, but Marcusa, I think, has to be read then as a kind of very vile theologian whose objective, whose theology is that it says, so So the people in Dante who make the great refusal are people who take no standard, they reject any morality, and they're just totally out for themselves. And so that all of a sudden you start to see this crazy focus back on the self, this sort of navel-gazing, narcissistic, you know, your rules don't apply to me. Society's the the, the blank flag apply. or the flag of the blank slate. Yes, exactly. Kind of and so huh. this guy's a theologian. And so I tried to relate this to as I was kind of working it out with a Christian guy. And I was yeah. like, it's not that um, they're, they're, they're devil worshiping, you know, it's that they think that they can actually fit into the role of the, uh, that the, the devil holds. You are the consummate the... rebel from the yeah. order of the world. And imagine yourself, therefore, as a creator. And this yeah. is Marcus's theology. This is the theology operating at the heart of woke, the deep yeah. theology, not just the dialectical aspect of it, but that's the engine that drives the whole thing. This is yeah, this it's is profoundly the, the, modernist. I mean, if you go back to Milton, Milton is the modern theologian, and his hero was basically Satan. Um, but could you explain what you mean by theology? Because this is the first time in the last month you've begun to use this term. I would like to hear you. Like, yeah, how is that different than a philosophy or opinionation? What is theology? So I think uh, you know, there's I can give a few answers. Just that what I, I think of in general as a theology. Um, is, is a science of sense-making or a science of meaning. And by science, I'm using that in the broadest control of the then. term. Yeah, so the, 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 an organized body of knowledge is what Newman says, uh, John Henry Newman says, is a, is, a, is a science. And so I see a theology as that which relates kind of four key pillars of philosophy, one being epistemology, a theory of knowledge, one being ontology, a theory of being, one being... Uh, axiology, which is a theory of values, and one being, which most people have not heard that word, and then one being sociology, which is a theory of community. Um, and so a theology is an organized body of knowledge that relates those four philosophical pillars in one way or another, and thus becomes an organized approach to understanding meaning in life, including human beings' uh, place within that 
system of meaning and meaning making and sense making. Um, Theology has an intonation of some sort of higher order thinking. It doesn't have to necessarily be divine in origin or about God, but it does have some sort of kind of a, a spiritual or a very uh, metaphysical uh, kind of domain that it's it's organizing something that's that's complete or or defines all of existence. Um, yes. Beyond exactly. what a philosophy would do. So the legal definition of a religion, um, and I'm thinking, trying to think of the guy's last name, Ben Clements, has a, has a wonderful law review article on this. Uh, I would actually read the title to you, but I actually closed that tab the other day. So I don't remember the title. But he has an, Ben Clements, anyway, has a wonderful law review article. I've cited it. I have an article on New Discourses that actually tracks a whole bunch of it. It's a First Amendment case for seeing woke as a religion or something like that. Uh, and then uh, Vivek Ramaswamy actually cites the same law review article. I talked to him independently. He didn't know about my analysis and I didn't know he was doing his. He cites the exact same law review article in Woke Inc. So it's it's kind of a and, – and Vivek has a, a law degree from Yale. So Woke Inc. In, is uh, highly recommended. I, I, I suggest everybody pick that up if you have a chance. Yeah, so so this is this is a substantial one, but the the the, the um, definition of a religion, which isn't quite the same thing, the theology could kind of be said to be the philosophy at the heart of a religion in this sense, that that they give in the legal sense for First Amendment law, in the United States is does it answer fundamental questions about human life, and does it give rise to duties of conscience? If it meets those two criteria, then it is a religion. And I think, you know, of course, and Vivek also believes this is an open and shut case that obviously both woke and communism, which precedes it, Marxism, all Marxian theories unequivocally do these things. They, in fact, I think it goes much further. I think the philosophical, theological argument it goes much deeper than the legal one, but it certainly gives they it certainly gives a a comprehensive answer to the to the fundamental questions of human life and existence and it also gives unequivocal duties of conscience you must mm-hmm. stand against oppression in all forms at all times you must put yourself in the lens of the so-called oppressed as uh the systemic theorists view oppression you must 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 you know and no one has ever done as robin d'angelo says no one has ever done with this um it's a lifelong process etc so I think it's unequivocal that it meets the First Amendment law uh, jurisprudence definition of religion. And so then the theology being kind of the philo- the, philosoph- the philosophical underpinnings of whatever it is that makes that happen. So what what is the kind of systematic philosophy? And I use that phrasing very intentionally that informs what are those answers to the fundamental questions of life and being and why do they give rise to certain duties of conscience um Mm -hmm. that's i think what we could we could drive back and say that's what a theology is and so what i see here is a gangrenous theology in critical marxism that uh is 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 extraordinarily poisonous and that i you know i I don't know. I feel like I've had some major leveling up and understanding just how profoundly religious this is, and that the people who came up with this knew it was religious as they were coming up with it. Marcuse I, knew what he was doing. Can you fight this without a counter-religion? Uh, because if uh, you know, I I'm think going you through this must. Yeah, I think in fact you don't need a counter-religion. You need many counter-religions. In dialogue can those, with one like, another. 
Okay, in dialogue with one another, so some sort of beneficial um, alliance uh, in the true of term. theologies. Yes. Okay. Uh, a true tolerance across healthy religions that can squeeze out unhealthy religions. Okay. And is there a mediating principle? What is the mediating, um, uh, I guess, protocol between these different religions? Uh, I mean, obviously, the the then this is going to get thorny as hell. But uh, mediating protocol is going to be tolerance. But that's I don't think what you're asking about the the underlying driver that orients how can you tell I guess a good religion from a bad one or a good theology from a bad one. Besides just how mature is it, uh, how how deep are the answers to these kinds of fundamental epistemological, ontological, axiological, and sociological questions? Um, but in addition to that, what you're actually looking at is do they seek truth, where truth is that which corresponds to that which is real? And now, you know, I've said theology and truth, and all of a sudden every atheist in the universe just got all the, like, four hairs on their back stood up at the same time, and they're all, like— champing at the bit to say that this is nonsense but um and you would have been that person too six years ago oh yeah i would have went berserk and so you're speaking uh, from your lived experience so why don't you speak to them and and show how your reasoning to this position occurred okay so what i think is that these are this thing that i've called a theology which was i'm going to say a broad and systematic philosophy that incorporates aspects of epistemology ontology, axiology, and sociology uh, into a comprehensive body of study. I don't particularly care. We could have a what that theology is. It could be Catholic. It could be any of the various Protestant. But if we just kind of say Protestant is a placeholder, that they're all very similar variations on a single theme, um, it could be Muslim. It could actually be Buddhist. It could be outside of the Abrahamic tradition entirely. Of course, it could be Jewish uh, in various levels of orthodoxy. All of these are fine. Uh, it could also be completely naturalistic. It could be something like Spinoza's um, pantheist you know, nature as God. But it could also be, uh, and I don't know if you've ever um, paid attention to a YouTuber named, by, the, by the moniker Crocoduck, King Crocoduck, as a matter yeah, of fact. Yeah, I should have you two talk to him. Oh, God, other. he's brilliant. Actually, I was I spoke with him earlier tonight. Um, oh, really? He is, he's, he's an astonishingly brilliant guy. Yeah. But yeah. he's got a series right now that he's called he calls Nuking Social Constructivism. He's got three parts of it. And he lays out a completely scientific-based uh theory that, that does relate these things. So that could be considered a theology, but it doesn't have a God. Um, but in this broad definition that I'm using, um, it would fall within that. And I actually, it's funny because he starts putting this stuff out and he was talking to me as he was putting it out. Uh, I wasn't informing him. I don't want to take any credit for his argument. He did this all by himself. And it's the best articulation of stuff that I've thought for years that I've ever run into. He's It's absolutely brilliant. And so um, it doesn't have to be a theology in the sense of it's associated with a church or even a religion. The point is that it's this kind of comprehensive view that answers these kind of fundamental questions uh, and answers, uh, you know, the the question of, of what duties of conscience arise from those. And so what I think is that we need healthy ones of these that are oriented toward trying to understand reality as it is to the best of your ability, whether it uses a metaphor type Thing, or if it believes it is literally true, is fine too, in God or not, 
um, is irrelevant to me. And I actually think that those things are all approximations on a question that's extremely hard to answer and bigger than any of us. And as a result, those things need to be in dialogue with one another. And they need to be in debate with one another. Um, I see Mr. Crocoduck is here in the oh, chat. There he is. Uh, um, so, How did he show up? That's weird. He's like Beetlejuice. Like Beetlejuice. So Mr. Crocoduck, his, he should be, you know, we should be in a position and we have to get through this all-out onslaught that we're under now before we can do this. But that's, you know, that kind of a perspective on on this relationship between these pillars of philosophy need to be in dialogue with other ones. So he should be able to sit down with a prominent Christian theologian or a Catholic or get three or four of them up there at a time and start hashing out why these are better or worse ways to try to look at these questions. That's the dialogue if we want to kind of go back to culture war 1.0, but bring it back in a new form that's productive rather than destructive. This should be going on. And, you know, in different periods in history over the past many thousand years, we've had various degrees where that's better and worse. Sometimes people are killing each other instead. Sometimes they're actually hashing out dialogue over it. And we want to get back to where we can have dialogue. Right now, though, we've got this kind of alien parasitic entity in the form of this critical theology. Is it an alien has, or is it like some, some sort of disfigured love child of a bunch of different theologies that kind of just... Uh, yeah, came, I, well, it, no, it's anyway. it's not a disfigured love child. It is a disfigured inversion. It is an inversion and it, you invert... So it's basically the Antichrist. Like, it is. Like, all yeah, the way in that sense. It, it definitely is. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, so let me just plug Crocoduck's video series again. You should go watch that. Yeah, I'm putting it's really him, good uh, on here. So uh, I'm putting him on the screen. You guys, uh, if you're if you're looking through the chat, it's King Crocoduck. He's excellent. I'm going to try to get him back on my channel if he has any time. He's a very busy man. But very busy with man. regards to um, duties of conscience, you, conscience, you made me think that that's probably the vector by which new atheism became woke, and because mm-hmm. it didn't it didn't propose any duties of conscience, and so when those questions inevitably began to arise, um, then they went very hard into, we need to lift up the minorities. It's basically a reconfigured Christianity, but imbalanced somehow or something. Right. And so this is really interesting because this is exactly the thing that John Henry Newman, if you read the preface to the idea of a university, which he wrote in 1852, Newman warned everybody, and he's a titan, right? So he's a huge figure. Many, many people have read Newman. It's not like he's this unknown, obscure figure I stumbled upon. He's a titan. I was in a car not that long ago, as it turns out, with Eric Metaxas, who's a very famous Christian. Um, and, you know, he, we got chatting. We'd met before, and we got chatting. And uh, that was a very interesting conversation we had but he's like what's going on and i was like well i'm reading john henry newman and i found out this and this thing is very interesting he's like oh my god you're reading john henry newman he's he's a giant he's like i need to read him that's amazing you know he's all geeked up about it and Mm -hmm. so this guy's not small but what he his argument's very simple he's he says that and this is something the new atheists were really blind to really really blind to that if you he says that a university this is the the essential argument of the idea of a university is that it should be a place where all knowledge is taught uh, there you go right it's a school it's not a research institution it's mm-hmm. a school where all knowledge because universe should be taught and mm-hmm. universal knowledge and he says in his argument is that theology is is knowledge in that regard and therefore 
it needs to be there. And then what he says, and this is, I think, the crux of the argument, is that if something that does the role of theology is not there, then something else will fill that role. And so it's not whether, you know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, well, we lost religion, and by losing religion, you know, political religions crept in. No, we lost theology. We lost at the center of a conscience, life. a conscious um, deliberation over these fundamental questions and duties. Correct. And that being specifically in the center of intellectual life. So as we progress from the pre-modern to the modern era, the center of intellectual life left the church and went into the universities. And that center of, of intellectual life slowly, completely abandoned theology as a centerpiece. So Newman's argument, which I agree with completely, is that if you take that out, something else is going to fill it in. It's going to be the natural sciences or the social sciences, which are the most obvious candidate. Our friend Mike Nana, of course, has been saying we're in a social sciences religion now. That's what woke is. Hmm. And Newman says they're not equipped to do it. What He doesn't at any point say Christianity might be wrong, but well, actually he kind of does. Um, but hmm. what he says is these other, the natural sciences are not equipped to do the job. Now, this is again, where I would really encourage you to go watch this thing that, especially the second episode of the three parts so far of nuking social constructivism that, that our friend Crocoduck has put out, because he actually says that I think that the sciences can do this and his articulation is brilliant. Um, but the new atheists certainly weren't there. And, uh, we've not done a good job with this. And so we have the social sciences and to a degree, the natural sciences stepping in and trying, fumbling around. And this is what is the moral landscape that Sam Harris wrote, fumbling around the idea of axiology is really what it comes down to. Okay. So, and mostly my old friend, you know, our friend, Peter Bogosian, he used to say metaphysics, just say no. What he really mostly means by metaphysics, just say no, was an old atheist kind of, you know, thing we would say uh, is, is ontology, just say no. Don't even talk about a theory of being. It's just a waste of time. We can't answer those questions. And so it's all about epistemology. So what happens is if you release ontology and axiology and, and it kind of just punt them, and then you have no overarching theory that relates epistemology, ontology, axiology, and sociology together, something like sociology is going to step in and say, oh, this is how, or in psychology are going to step in and say, this is how human beings are going to best flourish. Or with Sam Harris, neuroscience, this is going to step in and tell us on a bunch of seriously dubious studies using fMRI uh, MRI that, that don't pan out anymore. Um, this is how we're going to get to the bottom of this relationship between these fundamental pillars of deep, deep philosophy. And uh, so I if, think Newman's right. And that's what I think what's happened is that this like kind of to, to draw off a of Harry Potter, this like flayed, you know, skinless undead. baby looking thing, yeah. the, Voldemort at the very end of number seven, where he's in the, the train station or whatever kind of as an image, um, you know, a fragment of soul, that thing, that that's the critical theory theology has been able to kind of grow and fill the spot because it's so intolerant, it was able to push this weaker theology out of the way. So you had, you, you could have a strong theology that got overly secularized 
became a weak theology with these other departments kind of filling it in, but in a semi-rigorous way, but without that overarching big picture bridge. And then a parasite was able to latch onto the weak thing and then colonize it. That's the picture that I see has happened. So if you, uh, following Newman, we say that these different sub-disciplines of the university are not equipped to uh, manage and dispense a theology. What are the skills, the skill set, and the methodologies of somebody who is equipped to do that work? Beyond my scope to answer that question, I don't know. Uh, I do know that people have given more and less convincing answers. I think that the major world religions um, do excellent jobs of approximating just through it's something 2,000 years old that has survived through generations and generations of people and wars and you know various good popes and bad popes and they, whatever. Something Christianity is a 2,000-year-old religion, right? Islam is a 1,400-year-old religion. Something that's gone that long and held on that well, whereas many, many cults have arisen and been destroyed in the process and just haven't survived, hmm. must approximate— this is a kind of very Brett Weinstein evolution argument, right? Pragmatic. Omega principle. Yeah, it's sort of a—it's also kind of a Jordan Peterson thing. Jordan, Jordan Peterson thing that it's like, I don't think that they're the right answers. I think that they've done a great job of approximating it and that they've had many, many sober thinkers over long periods of time yeah. adjusting and improving upon the approximation that they offer. I find the— uh, the national bid put out by by Crocodile much more compelling in terms of a the the what good articulation nascent bid nascent okay. as in just arising new coming yeah. out yeah. Uh, bid as in you know we made a bid on things I find it a much more compelling way to go about this but what are the skills uh, you know this is we're talking things like you know very vague things like discernment and purposecacity and you know realizing how being able to see the interrelations between different fields. Uh, and then not just that, but the the interrelations between fields and what it means to, to be human and to live a life as a human, and in fact, to live a good life. Um, these are not easy things. These are extremely big things. And um, hmm. that's why I think, you know, mature religions have a gigantic leg up in this regard when they're not being a bunch of prats. Uh, and that is because they've had centuries to try to approximate it. Scriptures are, are from a, you know, agnostic or atheist perspective, scriptures are records of what survived a very long tradition of trial and error. If you read the Old Testament, you can see that the, that the, the Hebrew people had a bumpy frickin' ride, <laughs> to put it mildly. To Israel, as a, as Israel, as a, as a, people has had a bumpy ride and the chronicle of the old testament is oh my god look how terrible we've left the way you know look how bad everything's getting and then some guy humbles himself before god is let lets himself be led by god falls into the position of faith not knowing that it's going to work out and whether that's Gideon, whether that's Noah, whether that's um, David, whether it's you know Elijah, whoever it happens to be, falls back into this position of faith. They redeem or help redeem, or actually they become the conduit through which God is able to redeem the, the community. And there's a gigantic lesson recorded there. And then the people screw up again, and they lose their way, and somebody humbles themselves back to the point of faith, putting themselves back to complete—for me, that means complete humility to that which is. 
complete humility before that which is. And then okay. they get back on track again and again and again and again. And, you get, and another lesson yeah. is delivered. And so the scripture becomes this really great anchor for being able to relate ideas about these patterns these, of behavior. And and yeah. most importantly though, yeah, how they relate to human life and succeeding against things like adversity and um, calamity yeah. uh, and, and, and just finding a way to, to, to put people on a path to where in particular, we get back to that question of, of values, you know, wh- what are values? Where do values come from? Why, are, why do they matter? But then how does that relate to what it means to be fundamentally human? There's your ontology. What does that mean to relate to um, what is and is not true? There's your epistemology and how do we interact with one another in regard to that? That's your sociology. That's what I'm, you know, that's kind of what I'm seeing at this point. Uh, so it's really kind of an exciting time. It sounds exciting. So it doesn't seem like you signed up for this. Like, like you went to a recruiter's office and they're like, okay, no. we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to send you to this country and da, 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 you're going to save the world or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. So it mm-hmm. seems like you just kind of, you were thrust into this and yeah, let Jesus you're, take the wheel as they say. Yeah. You're just uh, following an intuition. You're following a compulsion. So I'm wondering you, it seems like even though it wasn't intentional of the, the, the last five years or so, uh, what's happened to you and what you've been doing, but you're still following out some sort of duty of conscience. And I'm wondering, like, what, where are the values that uh, are coming to light that you hold through the actions and through uh, the fights that you engage in and the work that you do? Like, uh, like. So, I mean, I've said from the beginning, and I think it's a good time to remember this, I said this at the beginning of the first talk I gave in the direction of new discourses, which is that one in London with the tie and the man spreading on my profile picture on Twitter. Um, Still there. And where they, yeah, and where I'm holding so up literally exactly this book. And there's a famous picture of me in a suit holding up this book. Yeah, I have it right next to me. Could you um, could you put it right so in front of your face here. so people can see it? I, I wasn't able to see it. It's going to be like yeah. right in, in front of your face. It's is yeah. everyone really equal? <laughs> Yeah, you can see who, By who Robin D'Angelo and Oslem Sensoroy. Sensoroy. Yeah, so um I said then that it's it's an allergy to bullshit and unfairness. Um I am not equipped well to deal with I think we've talked about my like high sensitivity to cognitive dissonance before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. On the show. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a huge motivator for me personally, but I have a good sense I think of of right and wrong. I want to see good for people, contrary to what people on Twitter are trying to imply about me right now. I'm not exactly an authoritarian. I have absolutely no wish to tell anybody how they should live. I really don't care how you live. In fact, I don't even want to know how you live. Like, just leave me the hell alone. Um, Live your life. Let me live mine. And let's figure out how to meet in the middle. And let's – yeah, I'm almost libertarian except that I think it's a bit naive um, and simplistic in that regard. Uh, So – but, but you know, how do I – I've been I've been very inspired lately by looking and at the different periods of my life this has been the case you know, looking back at the virtues why are they called virtues you know I got interested in virtue ethics I think virtue ethics is a crappy way to do meta ethics personally but is this uh, related I, to axiology this is basically a- another term for axiology then for virtue ethics no right. Um, no. okay. Sorry. so axiology is a theory of values like what are values and where do they come from yeah. I guess Yes. It falls of. under that category of those questions that we were talking sure. about. Okay. Virtue oh, yeah. ethics, okay. though, is kind of like looking back at the way the Greeks said that the virtues lie between the extremes. So the kind of 
classic examples on the one extreme you have cowardice you're afraid to do anything on the other extreme you have brashness or whatever where you're just rashly acting out and somewhere in the middle between those at the golden mean and the very greek idea right at 1.618 you have wherever that happens to be or i guess it'd probably not be there it'd probably be at 0.618 which is one over yeah 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 it's fee it's the golden ratio oh i thought it was five but it's fee okay there we go fee the golden ratio. It's somewhere in there is the golden ratio or the golden mean anywhere. And you find courage and courage becomes a virtue. And so I think that there's a ton of needing to meditate upon personally or reflect upon what do these virtues mean? And what I see is the difference between, you know, a virtuous theology then and a, a corrupt critical inversion is that I don't want to overthrow those virtues. I want to identify I want to. I don't want to identify them to throw them down and smash them. I want to identify them to uh, to increase them, to improve them. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's that's sort of. I mean, that's not a good answer. I don't know the answer to the question you're asking. So it's the best I can give you. And in that debate that um, I haven't watched, and people need to watch it, and you're going to need to tell it like myth myth makers, myth informed, the myth informed. Yeah, uh, myth informed yeah. guys, my Milwaukee so boys. It, it's really oil and water between you and the critical theorists. There's never twain shall meet. There's no like some sort of like margarine, like whipped, hydrogenated uh, version of. Uh, we don't want that. No. Okay. No, that would be a perversion. Third, of it. Okay. You do not want a third way. You don't want a synthesis between the thing and its inverse. You you don't want a synthesis between I should say virtues and their inverse. Okay. Okay. There, there, so so there's no golden mean between that. No. Between those garbage. two different. Okay. No. So. It's it's literally like you're saying how do you take a thing and a negative and put the negative in and get more out of it? You don't. You get well. I, you, you get you get good YouTube content if it's spicy. Yeah. <laughs> if it's spicy, <laughs> I'm going to go back to a super chat. There's a super chat from Icy Brain, and it's a question for you, James. Um, why did this weird process of forcing together a seemingly incompatible combo of idealism, theology, and materialism hold together so well in people's minds without falling into complete? dissonance. So in another way, how is it that critical theory can not melt people's brains with cognitive dissonance? It's got to be a novel mutation. No, it's a, this is a this is a misunderstanding. It does melt people's brains and it's meant to melt people's brains into dissonance so that they don't understand what's going on at all, so they want to refuse the entire system that's confused them. This is the whole critical game. Is the whole Marxist game before that is to create alienation from the existing system, so that people want to overthrow it. Meanwhile, but I thought they were going to solve are, alienation. No, they're going to set themselves up as the newer aristocracy. Is what they're really going to do. They're using these things as tools. The point of Marxism is to create a new aristocracy with the resentful people just below the elite taking the spot of the elite. I did. I recorded a podcast that's not out last night where I actually pointed, obviously, since yeah. it's still on my hard drive, um, where I actually point out that what this is is an attempt for people who are elitists who are not elite to create enough disruption to seize the positions held by the elite. So you can imagine that the elite are people who earned their high positions – well, I mean, it, it wouldn't have happened if we didn't stray from meritocracy and crony capitalism. I mean, our, our systems were, were rife with mediocrity before this took hold. Sure. Yeah, that's what I, that's, that's, 
a healthy system is not easily colonized by a parasite. It's where there is where there is sickness and weakness yeah. that it's able to come come into the picture. So yeah, there is the atrophy uh, and even the corruption of what there was. I recently I don't know if I've released this podcast or not, but I talk about it in terms of gangrene. Uh, you you have a limb and you cut off circulation long enough and then infection because the immune system can't do what it's supposed to do. Um, st- the, the, the strangled limb begins to rot and you end up with gangrene. That's where the critical theory rises up. So when you're like, can we find a happy middle between health and gangrene? No, you actually, what do you have to do if somebody, if you get a gangrenous finger, what do you do? Even in 2021 with advanced medical technology, you cut your finger off. That's what you get, and then get a ro- robot finger from uh, MIT later on down the road. Yeah, it won't pull so, the trigger. The, the problem with that, the problem with the rhetoric of disease or uh, mental health or a cult, it always goes down into us ending up. And and I'm bringing this up because I just need to be very careful whenever I invoke this rhetoric, but also there is solid criticism that this is just inverting and casting out and othering these other people. Um, Well, they call themselves uh, a virus. They literally say that the virus is the ideal metaphor. And a virus is kind of by definition a thing that is parasitical upon a host. It's not a parasite. I know they're different because a parasite is actually a living thing, but they're in the same category of behavior. They colonize a another living being in order to fulfill either the needs of nourishment or reproduction, uh, mm-hmm. whether they destroy it or not. It's not even a symbiotic relationship in, in vir- virtually any case. Then they, they have a paper that they compare themselves. They say literally that the virus is their ideal metaphor. And they is use this, the exact Is this the feminist uh, paper yeah, or is this another one? Yeah, as yeah. a virus. Is this as, as a cancer, yeah. She, even, she, she says that she they, wants to be cancer. They also say that cancer, because cancer represents true transformative change. That's, that's in the paper. They it's compare themselves to AIDS, SARS, and Ebola and say, that's us. And then they say, also, some viruses cause cancer. That's us, too. So I don't mind when they're claiming that for themselves. And I'm not also saying that necessarily any particular people are. I say I, I say the ideology itself is. Yeah. It's not a mystery. Marxism and all of these Marxian theories, and we could actually go— Hegel was more idealistic, but— um, Marx wasn't. <laughs> Marx was resentful. Marx was a guy who was in the kind of the lower upper class strata because largely of his wife's family estate that he was siphoning off of. And he hated two things in the world more than anything, people richer than him and people poorer than him because he couldn't stand the idea of becoming like the poors. That's a kind of a pathological dislike of the of of people you believe you're better than and then he had a you know raging resentment of the people who were the movers and shakers of society and so i actually do i do think that this particular ideology traffics almost wholly in resentment and it is a resentful again it's elitists who are not elites who covet being elite while being utterly horrified by the idea that they're going to have to mix it up with the dirty proles who they are their whole identity for whatever sad set of reasons depends on them being able to set themselves apart from they are people who are not at the top who believe they should be at the top 
um, elitism without being elite or elitism outside of the elite. And I think it is hmm. actually a pathology. I don't, and why does it catch on? Because it's really easy to get people who, who are in that position to resent the people who are more successful than them. You could, as I went through this myself, my lived experience. So it's true. Great. Undebatable. Excellent. I got a PhD. I went through, I was raised on the whole idea. You go to college, you get an advanced degree so you can get a good job. So you don't have to be one of those dirty proles. And so there's this fear that you're going to lose all of your status as an educated, more elite member of society if you end up having to go get a welding certificate and, and do some dirty job micro, right? But at the same time, you here I was with no life experience, no real job experience, very few actual hard knocks, and thinking I'm just smarter than smart and I'm better than all this, you know, these other people. Uh and I had this same problem. I went through this in my early 30s, uh, this same problem. So I know this is a real thing. I feel lucky to have had the experiences I did that led me and the, the perspective I did to, I think, overcome this. But I don't think a lot of people do overcome it. And I think they get trapped in this position yeah. where where a series of, of turns of good good fortune or privilege have led them to be – um, in positions that they are not, they haven't, in a sense, really earned them. They haven't worked their way up, I should say, from the bottom to get there. They had an easy, say, middle class or upper middle class existence. They went to school. They got the degree. They got the job. But they didn't build the company from the bottom up. But then they look at the people up above them and they say, oh, well, that's just the boss's son. He's an incompetent boob or whatever. Maybe the boss's son's actually good at his job. And they resent those people who who worked their way up because they think that they're I, – I did. I thought I was fucking smarter than everybody and that I deserved success. Some people I wasn't able still to think you think that, James, just to be completely honest yeah, well, on this one. Yeah, they can blow me. I don't care. People think a lot of things about me. I know, I know. My I entire know. life is people thinking lies about me and putting them on social media and then I swallow them all and I – Oh. Take them inside of myself and turn oh, them no. into perfectly timed memes that ruin their life, Claire <laughs> Lemon. Oh no, here we go. <laughs> A lot of people love you, James. <laughs> that was my devil emoji. Resentment is a hell of a it, it's a it's a hell of a quagmire to get uh, stuck in and and it is it's very unhealthy. I, I want one thing I wanted to like propose is that are there ways to engineer getting people out of that? But actually, it's got to be something higher than the person that left them out of that. It's got to be some sort of fate or or just life circumstance or or just um, having to learn the lesson. And like you were saying about the biblical prophets. Saying I, I've I've gone out of the path and just returning to a state of grace in your phraseology about just humbling oneself before what is and then starting over from there. Yeah, it is, and it, it's also like another piece of this is you know a lot of people plan stuff out. Like if you think you're planned out more than two steps ahead, you are drunk. Well, what are you talking about? China's doing a pretty good job. No, they're they not. Got, they got fifty years. They got fifty Ooh, year plan. They think they do. China's doing really good right now because um, a lot of people are helping them uh, largely by helping us trip over ourselves. Um, hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, you know, we should we should not uh, diminish 
or, or, or understate the, the, the danger that China presents to the rest of the world right now, of course. But uh, we shouldn't mm-hmm. overstate it either. And I think the vast majority of what we hear is an overstatement. And if the West would get its act together um, and stop trying to become China so it can beat China, which is what it's doing right now, which is a fool's errand, um, <laughs> in a very nasty dialectical fun way, by the way, it's all Hegelian <laughs> nonsense. Um, but if it would stop doing that and go back to what it was good at in the past, actually, China being what it is lies about everything, including to itself. How many people actually died of COVID in China? Nobody knows. What's China's no, it's, economy? It's like 5,000, I think, knows. right? Or 6,000? Yeah, what's the curve? It goes up. It goes flat across. It's amazing. It's magic. It even went down, maybe. The total number of deaths actually went down, maybe. No, actually, there's just a perfect horizontal bar. They lie to themselves. What's their economy look like? Who knows? What's their actual military strength? They don't – some of them might know, but it's just like the problem with Chernobyl. The pressure on them to make China look good and save face, even to themselves constantly – is a recipe for their eventual pride comes before the fall is that it's a recipe for their eventual collapse. And if the West would get its head out of its ass and realize that, uh, and to take smart, but strong action against what's actually happening while they have, you know, certain massive advantages, um, the threat would be a very different, we'd be, we'd be analyzing the threat very differently. China right now is a communist organ that has or communist state that has incorporated a fascist organ within it uh, mm-hmm. in its market the west is like i know how we can beat that let's become a fascist thing that redistributes like uh like a communist one so let's become fascism with communism inside of it to answer communism with fascism inside look at the dialectical opposite oh wow it's just hegelian nonsense right well, the correct we answer have... is don't do any of this hegelian horse crap Take the uh, wait, wait, what's the non-Hegelian way, like a pluralistic uh, meeting uh, of yeah. uh, people? Pluralism, freedom, yeah. actually letting you know, letting people entrepreneurialism. Have, yeah, have have the absolute right to their own property. We don't need to have like this, mm. you know, divine idea as ex- as it exists on Earth in the state uh, mm. kind of mentality. We don't have to see that everything is a contradiction that's got to be met with its opposite so that we can find a higher order synthesis. Wait, are you we saying we can't be anti-woke anymore? Is that what you're saying? We have to let go of you the mental... You should be extraordinarily counter-woke. Counter-woke. There we go. Yes. The woke must be countered. Um, can I ask you well, a Here's super a good example, question? by the way. This okay. is big. Just a real, Then we'll, we'll do the question. I don't want to get okay. lost in this. So yeah. let's not do a ton of follow-ups on this. This is an example of the West tripping over itself. So we got BlackRock dragging us all around by ESG and all the other Vanguard, uh, Goldman Sachs, et cetera, are all using this yeah. environmental, social, governance, social credit score on corporations, right? Well, where does BlackRock put most of its assets right now? In China? Do you think China is going to be subject to ESG, social credit? No, of course not. So all of a sudden you can see that this creates this gigantic, stupid advantage for China that BlackRock is grifting off of so that it can maintain greater control over all of the West. That's the West tripping over itself through Larry Fink, through the character, the individual character of Larry Fink. Hmm. That's an example of what I'm talking about, about the left tripping all over itself. And then the West. Being, yeah, sorry, the West tripping all over itself yeah. and China being the beneficiary of that tripping over ourselves. And, and uh, only a, a robust uh, return to some sort of checks and balances within crony capitalism would uh, rein those things in. I mean, well, the goal is in. to minimize the cronyism. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 
ESG, the, the social credit score that these big banks are, are using, these big asset managers, it's the ultimate cronyism. It's the absolute ultimate cronyism. It's like basically, you know, for the, oh, what do we have me. to do to get a high ESG score? You have to be all up in on this COVID nonsense. So you, everybody has to wear a mask. You have to wear five masks a day, but it's the biggest mm -hmm. environmental catastrophe since like we were killing dolphins or whatever. It's, it makes no sense because it's all fake. It's all just, oh, we, we have an agenda. We're the technocrats. We're the stakeholders of this public-private partnership. You scratch our backs, we scratch yours back. We'll make sure that your company's profitable even as you lose most of your customer base because we're going to manage your assets. So that, you know, it's it's uh, it, this is the most crony thing that's happened since like Vanderbilt and Standard Oil and all the other jerks back in before Teddy Roosevelt's time were yeah. were colluding in gigantic trusts. It's the exact and, same and, problem. For the people who are listening uh, who want to learn more about this issue specifically, I do, again, recommend uh, Woke, Inc. Uh, could you pronounce uh, the author's name again for me, James? Cause I can't. Vivek Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy, yeah, Vivek Ramaswamy. V-I-V-E-K, and Ramaswamy is spelled the way it sounds, actually. It's not a hard... Yeah, that's the cool thing about the Indian um, names. They're usually very consonant-vowel, consonant-vowel. Yeah, there are also 11,000 of them. Yeah, it, words long, or letters long. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, 11,000 vowel consonant. <laughs> Before I get to this really important question, which European country did your ancestors mostly come from? I don't know, but I think Scotland, uh, definitely okay, so you're, there's some English, okay. there's some Scottish, there's some huh? Alsace Lorraine region on the border between Germany and France. Mm. Uh, mm. I know that that's, that's my dad's mom's family is from there. Okay. Uh, now the Lindsay, you would say, Oh, obviously Scottish. No, that's family. That's history's mysteries. Lindsay is a fake family name for, Ooh. for me as it turns out. Yeah. There was a, there was Did a, you have a vagabond grandpa or something. Great grandpa, yeah. My wow. great grandmother, who was German in origin, um, shacked up with somebody and took the secret to the grave. And then in her safety deposit box, when she died, was this letter to my grandfather that was, Your dad isn't really your dad, but I'm not telling you who it was. So, no <laughs> idea who, no idea who the real, uh, I mean, we Bitch could move from beyond the grave. <laughs> yep. Ouch. Yep. Yep. Oh, and so. Wow. So she ended up, she had been married and her husband died. And then she apparently had a fling in which my grandfather was conceived, but then met another man named Lindsay and married him before he was born. And uh, hmm. so the, he raised my strain. grandfather as his own um, and hmm. gave him his name. But Lindsay is not genetically me. Histories, mysteries. See, I love yeah, this stuff. It's really yeah. interesting. Crazy stuff yeah, happens. Life is messy. It's fun. Why am I going to tell anybody what to do when life is this messy? How am yeah. I going to order your life for you? Life is a complicated set of things. Well, I mean, and and there's there's the value there. There's a there's something to add to the axiology of what you were saying earlier about how to source and resource and and parse through knowledge is is a, an appreciation for these mysteries, an appreciation for history. Right. Yeah. When, when we go to these places and say that people have been here for a long time and not just uh, not going so far as to say that we're standing on stolen land, but not going so far as to say to ignore all the all the history of all the people that have been wherever uh, you end up being um, in the great chain. So this is a super chat. Curious how James sees 
This is really relevant uh, to what we were just talking about thematically. How do you see your Catholic upbringing? A net good or more harm than good? Irrelevant. Utterly irrelevant. I don't um, think so. I think you're a I think you're an Aquinas. I think that you have like some yeah. deep no, but scholastic. That, that has nothing to do with having my Catholic upbringing. My dad, I don't think, even believes in God. I'm not positive one way or the other. He's never confessed one way or the other to me, but certainly he's a very secular man. And I was raised Catholic because his mom is Catholic and that was what was going to happen. So it's just and a habit. I, I never took it particularly seriously. It certainly wasn't what was going on at home. My mom was a Methodist, so she wasn't even Catholic, but she wasn't she was she's Methodist nominally. I don't. I think she went to church like eight times when I was a kid. Um, so religion wasn't actually significant. Religion was that is very much like The Simpsons. Is that damn thing you had to go to on Sunday that busted up your Sunday morning between Sunday school and then mass. So I was never really Catholic. I mean, I technically got confirmed. I never actually got my name removed from the roll. So I was, I I was raised in a in a occasionally Catholic environment. Uh, but I was never like, it was never like a, any meaningful part of, of who I was. Oh, and so your parents weren't fundamentalist or, or, uh, no, true believers or no, they were, they were typical Americans uh, who, you know, uh, I think my dad may have, may or may may not have believed in God. I have no idea, but uh, you know, we nodded toward, toward there being a God and God being a thing that people talked about. And we were not religious in any meaningful sense, except that dad wasn't going to let his mom down through Catholic guilt because he was properly raised Catholic and went to Catholic schools and so on. Uh, and he wasn't going to let his mother down. Uh, so from, he saw his duty to get us from baptism, birth and baptism to confirmation, my brother and I, and then we were on our own. In fact, he told us that quite early in our childhood, seven or eight years old. It was, once you get confirmed, you're an adult in the church. If you never want to go again, don't go. And I'm well, like, if that's the case, okay. then why pour so much energy into atheism? You've written books about atheism. You were Because I grew up in the Southeast, which was like relentlessly, okay. I would even say, you know, it's Protestant supremacist, um, or was. Baptist, it's less now. Yeah. Baptist, yeah. And it was just like, you know, by the time I started writing about that stuff, atheism, I got kind of involved when I was about 30 or 31. And what was the impetus that put me over is they're trying to put creationism back into schools. And it's the science thing. It's the same thing that pushed me over the edge with the, with the woke is I read these glaciology turning feminist. I'm like, fuck this. You know, that was like my red line. It's like, you're not going to pervert science with freaking ideology, but it was the same thing that was like, you know what? I'm not going to stay quiet about religion anymore. I don't believe this crap. I should be able to say, I don't believe this. Okay. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be a problem. I shouldn't have to pretend I go to a church so I can talk to somebody. Uh, hmm. like I used to get told, well, just tell everybody, don't tell everybody you don't go to church. Tell them you go to the Catholic church you did when you were a little kid. And that's what I had to do. And it's like, I got tired of being fake is what it boiled down to. And so I had, that was early thirties. I had this like kind of pent up anger at the time, just to be very confessional about it, about the way that it, like I was required to nod to this thing that I didn't actually find interesting or true or at the time, respect at all because it had pissed me off for so long. Now, I take go back 10 years, though, when in my early 20s, I was chaplain in my college fraternity. I helped lead Bible studies. I brought in people from different faiths to help lead those Bible studies. I, I My best friend's dad was a minister in the Presbyterian Church. 
he and I did our own Bible studies. I read the Bible itself several times, twice all the way through the New Testament, six or eight times all the way through the Gospels, kind of repeatedly. Um, very interested, but I was also reading Buddhist stuff. I was also reading about Taoism. Um, I was very interested in these kinds of you know spiritual traditions and trying to understand the world in those terms. But I always kind of came back to, you know, that kind of Western biblical root on a level two. So that's early twenties, late twenties. It's like, what are they do? Why are the dinosaurs didn't exist people or Jesus rode one if they did trying to put this crap back into schools. And I was super mad about that. And that's what was the tipping point where it was like all this decade now of me not being able to be honest about that. I had by my early twenties, I was like, you know, I take the Bible seriously, but not literally. And 10 years later, I was just super pissed off that I wasn't able to say that without it being this whole damn thing. Huh, and okay. then atheism. Okay. Uh, you said that that happened during your early 30s. It seems like you had a lot of anger and resentment at the same time that you were involved in, in uh, kind of trying to do social justice on the yeah, level. Yeah, damn right of, I did. That's why yeah. I look back at the at the new atheism movement. I'm like, that was critical religion studies, and I got sucked into it. And I know what draws somebody into a critical theory of something. Anger and, and resentment. And did you write your way out of that, or did you uh, get a kiss by a fairy or something? Yeah, made out with a fairy. What are you going to do? Um, no, uh, I did. I wrote my way out of it. I thought my way out of it. Uh, I decided by 2013 and 14, so that's only a few years into my atheisting, which started really in 10 and 11. Um, hmm. I decided by 13 and 14 that the dialogue wasn't interesting any longer. Hmm. Uh, and that's when I turned to psychology and I was like, what's going on underneath this stuff? I want to understand why people are religious, et cetera. And I really wanted to get to the bottom of, of finding a kind of a position to where I could have this kind of middle ground where I could talk to religious people and not just be frustrated that they were using religious language that it didn't make any sense to me. And it was like, they, these people, I, my, my great <laughs> insight. So, so, you know, young kind of autistic guy. Um, so compassionate of me was these people really believe this and they're very serious about it. They must mean something very significant and probably true on some level. And so let's figure out what that is. What are, where are they coming from? What's it for? What's it doing? And then by the time I wrote through that, which is it culminated in that book is everyone is wrong about God or everybody is wrong about God. Um, which I published at the end of 2015, kind of summarizing these thoughts. Uh, I was done with this whole like atheism thing. I thought it was like, it was just, just a division where people aren't able to relate to one another. And then of course I started going after the woke stuff because I got involved in the grievance studies thing. And that was like this huge, like just diversion. I tell people now it's like, I jumped off a cliff. I didn't know where my life was going. I didn't know where I was going to land. And, um, in the process of that, of course, I started to spend time with, Christians primarily uh, of different walks, and I decided that my best approach to that, I had watched other people who had been involved in the New Atheism Movement meet people who are more inclined to faith or even faithful themselves, and it's like watching them have like a spasm when somebody says something religious, and then all of a sudden communication breaks down and turns into this argument, and I was like, I don't want that. I'm willing to just, and if you read How to Have Impossible Conversations, you'll see that this is something that I contributed a lot to that, was why don't you just adjust, listen, learn, try to hear what they're saying, try to get to, to the bottom mm. of understanding what they're coming from. And instead of arguing, I just started listening a lot. And then I started mm. to kind of 
cobble together this new appreciation for this kind of theology thing that we've just been talking about this whole time, uh, slowly over time. Uh, in other words, you know, I kind of humbled myself, got myself out of the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also, of course, was able to spend some time working out all the poison, 2010 through 13, all that frustration and anger. I called this, I used to call this even when I was active in the atheism movement. I said every time somebody comes out of a movement, like a big ideological movement, they realize that they've kind of, whether it's religion or whatever, um, you know, been caught in something that they don't think is true anymore, that they have this phase I used to call throwing rocks at the cathedral. It's like you walk out of cathedral and you're pissed off that, you know, you're done with it. So you're pissed off and you turn around, you pick up a rock and you throw it at the at the window. Um, And some people get stuck in that and continue to throw rocks forever. And I think that most people like if you were in a cult or something and you left the cult, I think you're going to be pissed off at the cult. And if you watch videos of people who left fundamentalist churches or who've left, you know, literal cults or whatever, you'll see that they write they have like this YouTuber phase for like a year or a year and a half, where all they do is make relentless videos about how wrong that thing is. That's mm-hmm. throwing rocks at the cathedral. And I did that. I had that phase. And then I grew mm-hmm. out of that phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that was really important and good. But so, yeah, I it, think I did. I wrote my yeah. way out of it. And, and, and just to not everybody who's uh, battling a cathedral is doing that. That's not the only motivation, but there is a, there's a psychological motivation. So I'm just wondering... Is there a psychological motivation? I, you already said this to the relentless onsla- uh, onslaught against the woke. Uh, bullshit and unfairness. Um, this thing, though, I mean, it's like I said, I've told you, I think I know I've told this story many times. I think I've told you yeah. when we were doing the grievance studies affair, Mike and I had this phone call. And, uh, you know, we, we what it was all about. What the paper specifically was the progressive stack paper where we had written in to put white kids in chains and all this in the floor and don't answer their questions and talk over them and basically abuse them, never answer their emails and l- invite them to listen and learn in silence. All this kind of saccharine language over just abuse. And uh, so we were doing this and we submit it and we get I remember is when we got the reviewers comments back and they were like, this is all great, except you've centered compassion and you need to center discomfort. Overcoming privilege should be uncomfortable. I remember having the conversation with Mike and I've gotten so much trouble on Twitter for saying this phrase. And I know we've talked about it. Seed of a genocide. That was Mike. Mike was like, this is, I'm not that creative. He's like, this is the seed of a genocide. I was like, this is, this is the unraveling of Western civilization. So the thing Mm. with woke, and this is a fight I'm in on Twitter right now. The thing with woke is it is actually legitimately a totalitarian movement that's got major traction. And so even at this point, it's like, why am I all out against that? Because as my bio on Twitter accurately says, and I get mocked for this, I am against totalitarianism in all forms. I'm against theocracies. I'm against communism. I'm against fascism. I'm against totalitarianism of any kind. Why? Because at the fundamental root of it, I want to be able to live the life that I want to live. I want to make my own mistakes. I want to do my own research. I want to do the best that I can. And I am happy to take advice. I'm happy to consult experts. I'm happy to, you know, try to learn and and to defer to greater experience or wisdom. But at the end of the day, I want to be able to make my own decision. I want to be a free, independent adult in my life. And I actually want that for everybody. And that's never the case in a totalitarian system. And then that's if a totalitarian system worked. 
They don't work. They turn into nightmares where you're going to see a seed of a genocide is not incorrect. Depending on how you count it, you could actually say that we're over 100,000 deaths into a genocide right now, depending on what you categorize as what the, the things that are actually happening around us in the world. In order to pull off the great reset, we'll have to use the pandemic, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, we've got a how many hundred thousand dead when they could have been taking that thing you're not allowed to say on YouTube. Pause for a moment. Pause. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask a, a super Rhymes chat. With apple pectin. <laughs> that stuff's great in your bubble gum. Where do you put that? You put that in your like pie crust or something. Jelly. A jelly. It's okay. in all the jellies. This is this is from a while back, but um, I want to give uh, the super chats uh, uh, time in the sun. So uh, super chat. Yeah. Uh, previously, you, I believe he's talking to you. You said to leave politics out of work. I linked my coworkers to the 1948 Declaration of Human Rights and recommended they read it for COVID. It was considered political. How can we beat this repressive tolerance? That's from Omega Cyrus. It's not easy. So this is the fundamental trick that they're using right now. That fundamental trick is that they believe everything is inherently political and the goal is to politicize everything. And so you're... You say, here's this thing. You should read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And they're like, oh, that's being political. Because for them, everything is political. And it's all – this mm -hmm. is their, their ideology, is that everything is politics and everything is politics that have been organized by the people who have advantage to maintain their advantage unfairly over the oppressed. How do you beat this? The only things I know how to tell you are that I said from the beginning, Mr. Nana and I agreed from the beginning – I just ran into, like I said, this woman's name, Lisa Logan, in uh, in Utah, and we were talking, and she said the same thing that she had independently cooked up, which was that you have to expose it, you have to explain what's going on. So in, mm -hmm. in the language of how to have impossible conversations, when you have an impossible conversational dynamic, all of the advice in the negotiations and dialogue and mediation literature is the same. It is you when you hit an impossible conversational um, situation, you have to step out of that and you name the dynamic. So you change the conversation about whatever from whatever you're talking about to talking about why the conversation's gone off the rails. So you need to be able to expose that this repressive tolerance is happening, this rampant politicization of everything. You need to be able to then explain why that's going on. And to step away and to name the dynamic and talk about the dynamic instead. And then you have to be able to propose and offer uh, alternatives. Uh, so offer alternatives or articulate alternatives was my original EEAA alliterative uh, formulation. Expose, explain, articulate alternatives. Lisa's a little bit more base than I was. Hers was expose, explain, eradicate. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, yeah, bring the fire. Love it when moms go nuclear. Oh my God, I love a do, nuclear mom. Do Do you have any uh, thoughts on Paul Singer taking over Twitter? Paul Singer, I, is, is that, that the? Th this is Okie Dokie. He he's asking about Paul Singer. I wonder if that's the new uh, head of Twitter. Uh, I thought that I'm there was sure. the, the other guy whose name I can't ever remember or pronounce. Um, Twitter is probably about to make a series of very bad decisions. <laughs> Believe it or not, Jack, I think, meant... He's a bit woke, but I think Jack was always a bit of a left libertarian, and I think he yeah. really did at least 
nominally believe in free speech, et cetera. And now the, the whoever's in charge now doesn't. But it's really interesting, though, because the first salvo in his in this new war, besides that there's like stock prices tanking uh, the first and they had some kind of a purge, I guess, the other day. I don't know if that's true or not, um, but of uh, employees first, or of, no, accounts. Of, of accounts um, and those could be bots and things. So you never know. But the first uh, the first kind of thing that they've done, it, I see Antifa is the ones that are flipping out because they tried to they, they were doxing people, obviously. And so. The, now, Antifa is like flipping out like, oh, my God, Twitter's totalitarian now. The, the first like, rule oh. that dropped the day that the, the crown changed heads was that uh, you're not allowed to post pictures of people without their consent, which is basically Unless they're public anything. figures or some vague thing. Yeah, and they even said that the purpose was to was to protect activists and dissidents when I'm like, oh, shit, this is repressive tolerance all over again. <laughs> but then so far, the only people that I know of who've gotten in any trouble for it are Antifa, which is like – um, maybe they, they'll figure figure out their formula better later for whatever they want to do. But it, I don't know. I'm not going to make any predictions. I'm just going to continue to use Twitter as the tool. I get in trouble on Twitter all the time. I think I'm in you violation do? of drama you? law again. You know, I just got kicked off of Twitter for calling people groomers. That was right okay. before I went to Delaware. I forgot. I had two other adventures this month that I didn't even cover. <laughs> That's how busy my month was. I went to <laughs> I went to Liberty University, by we the way. We should just call these live streams James Travel Log. I know. That's where I talked to Eric Metaxas was at Liberty University. So I, I, I don't know if I'm the first atheist to get to have spoken at Liberty University, but I certainly did that. And did you get to speak at Liberty? I did. At Liberty? It, on, on, on campus. And then um, I went to Delaware right before Thanksgiving so oh. that we could do a talk in Brandon's neighborhood. And we, we talked about woke, how bad woke is right there in Brandon's community. In the, in the Scranton? In the Wilmington. Okay. I thought he was from Scranton. Well, he is, but he lives in Wilmington, Delaware now. Delaware is the, really pretty, by the way. Very, very pretty. At this point in time of year or like uh, probably a few like weeks ago? Probably weeks ago. Yeah. yeah Three yeah, weeks yeah. ago. Now it's yeah. probably winter right. ugly, but um, New England, yeah. I was also, the place where I was staying had a sauna and a swimming pool. Ooh. And so we were nuking ourselves. This is profound. Everybody should should try this. We were sitting in the sauna for half an hour at like 1.40 and cooking ourselves. And then we'd go straight out of the sauna, straight into that 40-degree swimming pool. Yeah. That is cold. It's bro. called a, a Norwegian bath. There's actually yeah. a technical term. We were it. calling it fry and freeze. And <laughs> in your southern fashion, this is the dude, Chick-fil-A version. <laughs> yeah. And it, it would it, – I'll tell you, based on my own lived experience, it will take a hangover away immediately. I've never seen a more effective hangover eraser, <laughs> and I tried it three times with three different hangovers. Um, wow. Yeah, works great. You should get you should get a house in in Delaware just just for this explicit purpose. Um, no, I'm for... going to get this thing. We're going to get this thing that's called a cold plunge, or it's actually a like a hot tub that can be hot or cold. Oh. Like over and the course of minutes, like a wine. I, no, like no probably wine. not minutes. Okay. So okay. We're, I'm going to like I'm totally like I'm going to set money aside. I'm going to get a sauna in this the cold mm-hmm. water thing, and I'm going to I'm going to do this. It is profound. I think it is probably one of those magically healthy things I've ever done. This is the oddest question I've ever had a super chat for, and I, I it, it sounds like kind of personal, so you don't have to answer it. But it's from Christopher Nicholson. Okay. James, did you? know someone named Katie Hedrick at Maryville High School. He's a Knoxvillian. 
and he's her fifth cousin and good friends with her older brother, Katie Hedrick. I definitely went to Maryville High School. There were definitely Hedricks there. It's been 20-something years. You know, here's a funny experience. I don't know. I don't remember if I knew Katie Hedrick. It's definitely possible. What I do know is that I looked through my senior yearbook I don't know, Wait, year. were you in the same cl- uh, high school class as Abram Kendi? Is that the twist? Is this the final twist? No, definitely oh, not. Okay. And so yeah. I I looked through my high school yearbook, my senior yearbook, about a year, a year and a half ago, and I was like, I remember like nine of these people. Like, what happened? <laughs> like, these are people I've never seen in my life. And I remember being very proud. My my best friend, as it turned out, when we had graduation, sat direct, you know, because it's alphabetical, right? So it's just totally random <laughs> luck that, that we had to sit alphabetically so we could go across the stage alphabetically, you know, in a, in a line. And so my best friend, it turned out, sat directly behind me at graduation. His last name started with a W. And so there were 208 people in my graduating class when we actually graduated. And there were we, we remarked about it because we were friends and we talked about these things. There were three people exactly who were like, who is that? We'd never <laughs> seen that person before. So I knew 205 out of those 208 people when I graduated by, you know, would have gone up to them by sight. And I seriously, I said nine, but it's probably like. 29 30 people who's like i don't remember their names i don't remember their faces like totally like my dissertation or whatever when i did my phd like high school people delete need room for math you know and now it's like math delete need room like that that hard drive has been (laughs) written over a few times now (laughs) with with marcuso like what are you doing to your poor brain i know you're gonna be like the world's foremost scholar on marcuso I might. Somebody's be. gonna like some 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 university is gonna give you like the honorary doctorate in Marcusa studies. By the, that would be by awesome. The time I still need one in freaking gender studies for the for the grievance studies affair. Um, I definitely want one for uh, what it's worth. But yeah, so it. Katie Hedrick, you know, it rings a bell is the best I can give you. Uh, I'm glad to know that she's still out there and has friends. Um, hmm. That's good. Yeah. Are there I'm, any? Uh, we're, we can try to have uh, a reunion, but I'm not going to go to a high school reunion. I'm not that interested in that. Yeah. Well, what was uh, Is there anything that sticks out about your high school experience that that you go back to and you're like, it was just something that you can't you can't forget about high school? Is there something? I mean, that, there that are instances that I remember, but a lot of them have to do with me being a little bastard. Um, <laughs> oh, really? I mean, were you oh, a prankster, yeah. or were you like snapping girls' bras, or pushing no. the math teacher down the stairs, or? No, 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 no. Flushing the um, freshmen's heads in the toilet or? No, I wasn't like, wasn't that cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like I was, you know, we had like our little, little gang of little, little, we were all like little snot nose shitty brats or whatever. And, um, you know, we had the people that bullied us and then we had the people we kind of bullied. Yeah, and when yeah. we, when we, well, it was like, but we were like their friends. Like I would go over and spend the night at their house and hang out, but it was like, we we're kind of like mutually bullying each other. And there was definitely like a, you know, the top side of the group and the bottom side of the group and the bottom side of the group was getting, you know, we we're all friends, but the bottom side of the group was like, seriously, like it was, it was probably wrong. And it turns out there's, there's an incident, but it just stands out in my memory. There's this one kid, I won't name him. Um, his first name was Bill, but, uh, we were sitting there and we were kind of harassing Bill in the English class. This was in ninth grade and he was sitting in all the way in the back 
by like that bookcase that was often in the full of like dictionaries or encyclopedias or something, the whole classroom set of dictionaries back in the day when you didn't have a phone, so you were a computer, so you actually had to use a book. And I don't remember, we were kind of like picking on him a little bit and he was picking on us back and whatever. And I don't remember what happened, but somehow like, I don't know if he threw his head back like in frustration or his back or whatever, but somehow he hit that bookcase and broke it. And all the dictionaries <laughs> fell off onto him at the same time. And the teachers, the teacher uh, <laughs> was a guy in our, in our English class in ninth grade. And he yelled at the kid and he was like, <laughs> I don't even know what this means to this day, but it's, I remember the scene like I'm still there. And he's like, Bill, you're a fractured idiot. And I have no idea what a fractured idiot is, but it's the funniest thing. And so that stands out. Um, there was the guy that beat me up until I would do a Spanish homework. And somehow I had like a bully intervention with him. And I was Is this like, in high school you were doing yeah, this? Yeah, this is my sophomore oh, you, year. Oh, wow. Oh, sophomore. Okay, so. This is, it was a big redheaded guy. So these damn gingers don't have souls. And so I don't remember what the deal was with him. But it, somehow I had some kind of intervention. It was basically like, look, I'll help you actually learn Spanish if you stop like making me do your homework for you. And then you just be able to do it. And somehow he thought that that was like really cool. And then, like, uh -huh. we actually kind of became buddies after that. Uh, like, that kind of stands out. Um, hmm. You know. Were you a gearhead? Know. Did you have, like, a weird mm -hmm. uh, boyish hobby during that time? No, Just, I, was, no. I was a nerd. I started doing karate when I was in high yeah. school. So I started to run with a lot of the karate kids at the high school. Uh, it was really kind of cool. There was this one kid that was picking on me. One day, uh, he found out I was doing karate. I was like, you know, getting up toward oh. my green belt or something low on the on the on the scale. He found out I was doing karate, and he started like, obviously, I didn't want to get in a fight and get thrown out of school or suspended or whatever. So he starts like bullying and picking at me in the stairwell, and I was like, I'm not gonna fight you. I'm not gonna fight you. I remember that kid's name too. I could make a meme about him and just blow him up these days. But uh, anyway. One of you the should other look him guys. up. See if he's uh, if he's woke or if he's on your side. He's probably, he might even be one of your supporters. Well, one of the other guys who was a black belt at the karate school and also who was, um, you know, a bit less concerned about what the school said or did about him <laughs> or to him, beat the living <laughs> shit out of him after school for picking on me one day. That was pretty awesome. Uh, oh, like had some solidarity okay. with the with the karate school kids. Um, yeah. I didn't beat him up. I probably could have, but I, didn't. Yeah, I was, goons, really, I was terrified it. I was going to get suspended. Yeah. I was totally like, I followed every possible rule you could possibly oh, imagine. Oh, really? When did yeah. you start to break rules then? Uh, I mean, it depends because like, what do you mean by breaking rules? I was definitely bending the rules at home all the time since I was like very young. It's, so there's a story from my very young childhood my mom likes to tell. Um give you an idea of picture of how I follow rules and what I think about arbitrary power. And I, I've grown out of this, but at the time, because largely it's been through my experiences over the last five years where I finally started just like throwing this stuff off. But my natural inclination, my grain, if you will, when I was a child at one point, my mom put me in a chair and like time out or something. It was like 20 minutes. Right. And I sat there in the chair and told her that there was nothing requiring me to sit there. I didn't have to sit there, but I didn't move my butt one inch off of that seat. And I just ex told her, I don't have to. I don't have to. Here's why. Here's our, these are my rights, blah, 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 like articulating all of this. But I didn't, I didn't violate the rule anyway. And so that's – I was very much like that. And then finally, I just got so sick of feeling like I have a chain around my neck 
that I was just mm-hmm. like, yeah, let's just break some rules, like break the yeah. arbitrary rules. I read, actually, yeah. I still think it's the most important thing. I, one of the most important things, I don't know, there are many most important things, but one of the most important things I've ever read is that wisdom is knowing when to break the rules. Yeah. It requires a tremendous amount of discernment. When are the rules arbitrary? When do they not matter? When can you bend or break them? When can you do something different? And um, hmm. that was... I don't obey stop signs if there's nobody around. Yeah, when I was a, like 9 or 10, I broke my dad. We were driving down the road, and um, uh, my dad was driving down the road. And I said, if everybody on Earth vanished except us, would you drive in the middle of the road, or would you stay in your lane? <laughs> and would you speed? And he told me he would still follow all the traffic laws. And I, I said, why? And we had this whole thing. Like, and I literally, I think my dad had like a philosophical meltdown. Like I broke him at like nine or 10 years old. If there was literally nobody else. So I was recognizing in a sense that the the traffic laws of a social convention, uh, Mm, just like gender. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Yeah. Doing traffic. That's my next academic paper. Mm, Doing Doing, traffic. Well, doing gender was, is this like, do it in the middle of the road? This is your, this is your, uh, George Harrison or Ringo Starr. Kind of uh, might be. Richie W wants to say that you're a joy on Twitter. So that's you know, true. All, 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 all the, all, you know, for all, for every hater, you have like ten lovers uh, of your uh, Twitter uh, fiascos. Um, that's. But we promised your wife that 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 this wouldn't go for three hours. So, um, yeah. is there anything that you can plug that you're coming up to that that you're okay with people knowing in advance so they can actually go and see you in person, or do they have well, to just? Be aware. Well, I mean, it's been kind of announced. So there is that America Fest thing with Turning Point in Phoenix. That's my last trip this year. So that's like the 18th to the 21st or something along those lines. Uh, I'm speaking at that with Charlie Kirk and uh, huh. and the uh, top guy of Breitbart. So we're going to do a panel together. It'll be fun. Uh, Are we allowed to say the top Andrew guy Marlo. at Breitbart's name? If I can remember. I think it's Andrew, Mar- but it's Marlowe. His last okay. name is Marlowe. Um, I met him. I did his show actually when I was at the last Turning Point event in July. But I meet thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and so this is very embarrassing now because I'm trying to remember the guy's name on the spot, and I'm tired and I don't. And, but anyway, he's a great guy. He we had a great conversation, and I'm really looking forward to it. And I will know his name for sure. Um, usually, I don't remember people's names anymore until I've met him like three or four times, though, because I just meet too damn many people. Um, so I have that that I can tell you that I'm gonna. People want to go there. That's where I'll be. Um, Phoenix. And I can plug uh, the book that I have finished now. I might tweak it just a little bit more with this one little insight I ran into in another book I was reading, um, Race Marxism. And I've just got to get it typeset. So once it's typeset... Then what, did you figure out a clever uh, name for that book? What's it called Race Marxism. Race Marxism. I yeah. still... That is a really bad name. I'm sorry, James. You're, you're a brilliant man, but that is Alex Marlowe. That's right. Thank you. Miles, Alex Marlowe. He's a great guy. I can picture him. I just couldn't remember his freaking first name. Um, no, I mean that's his. That's his Say it again. Name. Race what? I, I can't even Race remember it. Marxism. Race Marxism. It's like <sighs> identity Marxism, but with race. Okay. Not that hard. It's the right title, but it's I've not come up sexy with though. That's got to be like the subtitle. No, it's subtitle. Do, da, 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 da. Race Marxism. No. Yeah, whatever. You're the writer. Yeah. I'm just saying it's not anyway, sexy. Can have a little it's bit coming much. anyway. So 
we can plug that. Uh, I do have, you know, other things going on, but I won't talk about those yet. They are, they are TBA. I'm very excited. (laughs) Well, one more super chat. Um, Jonathan Rausch, uh, whose book you plug, uh, the kindly inquisitors. Yeah. I have his, his up book is so, uh, succumbing to, uh, TDS that he wants to give our rights over to Facebook. He literally goes on a screed about how Facebook knows better than us on what we should share. So anyways, um, but this is the question. A few months ago in conversation with Jonathan Haidt, Jonathan Rausch said that all knowledge producing systems are fundamentally political, including liberal science. Thoughts? And that that goes back to everything's ideology. That's the critical theory thing. It's like, well, it's all ideology. It's all ideology. It's all ideology. I mean, I hate to be this way, but it it depends on what you mean by political. Mm. Um, You are correct. I mean, you've already given the best summary. This goes back to believing that everything is infused with ideology. Um, There's there's productive ideologies and and destructive ideologies. I don't think it's actually – I mean, it depends on what you mean by political. Does it have political ramifications? Does it come from, you know, a political process? Uh, I think that in general what – and we talked about this before and then I did a podcast about it um, after I talked to you about it on New Discourses. I think in general that when, what people are thinking of when they're talking about political uh, – there's this confusion here – is that the, it really refers to a kind of a concentration of power. And what I see is that we're moving mm-hmm. into a decentralization of knowledge generation mm-hmm. right now. And if you want to call that political, it's just tedious. Um, because what we're actually doing is, uh, you know, proper knowledge generation should move away from political. But when people are saying that knowledge or whatever knowledge producing is political, what, what they really tend to mean is that there's an agenda. Yeah. Like I'm advancing my politics over your politics. Uh, this, I think this is the same thing where Helen and I, we even talked about it in cynical theories where we say that the postmodernists were incorrect in saying that um, that liberalism constitutes as a as a broad philosophy constitutes a form of politics. It is in fact mm-hmm. a it is a it is a conflict resolution strategy. And, yeah. and you know where I got that, Jonathan Rausch, oh, in the first really? part of Kindly Inquisitors, yeah. is that liberalism is ultimately a conflict resolution strategy. So, bet- conflict between what different political entities as one possible answer to that question. Mm-hmm. So it is a conflict resolution strategy. And in that sense, liberalism is not a politic. It is a metapolitical position. And that's why I keep saying we're not having a political fight right now. We're having a metapolitical fight. Yeah, but it still goes back to what you were saying about Newman and the uh, the, the theology um, of this. I is think that it if does, you don't yes. if you don't have liberalism corrodes a positive theology because it allows for it it, it tries to seek resolution in, in everything when sometimes no, there just needs no, to be axiomatic. Liberalism does not seem seek resolution. It is a method of resolving conflicts. So what it does is it allows people with very different opinions to be in the same space without killing one another. Mm-hmm. That's or not canceling. Politics. Yes, we're terminating so, as as CNN would so say of a, Chris a Cuomo. Robust, 
pluralistic theological space would have Catholics and Protestants of different stripes and Muslims and Buddhists and Taoists and, you know, Zoroastrians or whatever else, all in this able to have a dialogue where every single person and an atheist too could all come in, a scientist, whatever, we could all come in, we could all argue our own points of view about these things, discuss them, debate them. It could be extremely lively. None of us attack one another physically. None of us go after each other's family. And every one of us, inconceivably, no resolutions necessary. Every one of us could go away strengthened in what we believed when we came into the room and deepened in what we believed in the room. And the point is that what happened in the room didn't result in, you know, the kinds of things that we usually refer to as violence or conflict. We didn't fight. We argued. Mm -hmm. We debated. We discussed. We didn't punch anybody we didn't go take kidnap somebody's wife we did you know and hold their family hostage we didn't throw somebody out of their house and house and home so that so that you know we can leverage them it is the view that liberalism really for from Locke boils down to the having the inalienable rights to life nobody can kill you because you have the wrong view to liberty nobody can imprison you because you have the wrong view and property nobody can starve you or put you out into the streets because you have the wrong view. That's basically it. I think that this has been the the weakness here is that uh, that has been capitalized upon is that freedom of conscience and for, it needs to be articulated absolutely that I, I have an inalienable right to my own conscience. And then hmm. that's supposed to be what's secured by those three, though. But also, and this is the one that postmodernism and even critical theory have eroded, is I should have a fundamental right to my intentions. They don't get to paper over what I meant. When I said blah, blah, blah about X, Y, Z, they don't get to come in and step over me and say what you really were saying was or what you really mean was. Uh, hmm. I I don't get to have my intentions papered over by other people. And so this comes down to what, you know, the postmodernists were saying, you know, that the death with the death of the author, that there's there's no no only the 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 hearer gets to decide if i if i write a book and i intend you know whatever it happens to be and you read the book to mean something completely different then you are more authoritative than i am so authorial intent becomes irrelevant mm-hmm. and that thing is that is a big big problem because what it does is it takes away your ability to to be intelligible to yourself and to others uh in your intentions. And I'm not articulating uh, yeah, that right if you, yet. Yeah, if, you, if you take that too far, I mean, if, if you take, if you go against that too far, then, then you give up like the poetic enterprise of, or the, the comedic enterprise of, of saying more than one thing or not meaning no, what course, you say, of, course, of, course, of course, not even having a meaning. Like, no, I, of course I, and I, yeah, like so. I said, this is yeah. very new, but yeah. there's something here. There's yeah. something here. There's something to where, um, you know, a critical theorist, if I say something, they don't, they don't have any right to come in and say, well, what you said is actually white supremacy because. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. They, they, they can't apply a very uh, cynical interpretive lens to everything. One, they're just being assholes. They don't have Correct. any sense of humor and then they're not even playing towards ambiguity. So they're ruining, ruining everything that I want to preserve and, and kind of trying to say. Right. Others. As you know, I love the word play. And when you asked me if I wanted to plug anything, I had to resist very vigorously making some word play. At that uh, moment, the the more vigorously you resist, the more we love you, James. Vigorously resist plugging. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we should wrap it up so you guys can have dinner and uh, or or whatever you do for your nightcap. Um, thank you so much for coming back on, James. Always a yeah, pleasure. Yeah, dude. This was great. This was great. But I guess we, in light of the critical theorists, now we have to call you Benjamin. Benjamin. Voice. 
yeah, Arthur. Yeah, you can call me Arthur Benjamin. Uh, Arthur is my middle name, so that, that that that's close to Walter Benjamin. Yeah, Benjamin. Uh, Alto Benjamin. Yeah, that's you. What would, what would be your? We should come up with like instead of a porn name, your critical theorist name. What would be your critical theorist? We have to come up with some sort of like weird Buzzfeed thing where you say you pick your you the color Jinzy. your underwear. Lames Genzi. <laughs> it's obviously Lames Genzi. Oh, you're anything but.